we're uh, those of you who are uh, our guests uh, and our the, the, our guests this morning. Um, one of the things that we like to do here at St. Albans now is we preach through books of the Bible. <laughs> um, and there's something, I think, very powerful to be able to go through a book and, and go week by week and not just sort of skipping the parts that we don't like and uh, looking a long time at the parts that we do like, but just taking it as it, as it has been written, week by week, looking at verse after verse after verse and, and trying to get the, the big picture and the whole story from the text of Scripture. Uh, over the last uh, three weeks or so, we've been really looking at uh, just three verses, a small number of verses in Acts chapter 2. Uh, but this is all a prelude to the fact that we're going to go through the entire book of Acts. And um, one of the nice things about being able to be a pastor of a, of a local church, uh, there's many nice things about it, but one of the nice things about it is that I, I can say, you know, we're going to spend the next five years, <laughs> you know, maybe Jesus will come, that would be fantastic, but if he doesn't come and God gives me strength, uh, we're going to go through the whole book of Acts over the next five years. Um, and so uh, this week and next week, the, 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 these three weeks, we're going to sort of fill in the rest of Acts chapter 1 and 2, and then we're going to take a break and go back to 1 Corinthians because we're doing 1 Corinthians over three years. And, uh, and then we're going to you know, look at the cross and the resurrection, and we're going to look at John, and, and we won't maybe return to the book of Acts until the fall, uh, but uh, we're going to be looking through the book of Acts and uh, as uh, Heather was reading very well this morning, I realized that uh, um, the, uh, um, that was the, the old scripture list, <laughs> not the new one. So we got a preview of what we're going to be reading, uh, looking at next, next week. This week, we're looking at Acts chapter 1 to 11. And I invite you to take your Bibles. And um, I think it's page 942 of your pew Bibles, page 942 of your pew Bibles, I'm going to be using um, my personal Bible this morning, so that occasionally you'll notice a slight difference in the wording. Uh, I'm using the English Standard Version, and uh, you folks in the pews have the New King James Version. Uh, but of course, you're always, uh, you should always feel free and encouraged to bring your home Bibles with you. Uh, you know, one of the wonderful things about bringing your own Bible to church is, um, is, you know, it, it, it will help you later on when you're doing your own private devotions and, uh, and, and you're going through the text and you're always getting it in the words that you have in your own Bible. Uh, maybe if, if I mention that uh, the way a word is translated literally and it's just a sli- slightly different than the, ver- the word in your Bible, you can take a pencil or whatever and just make a little mark in the, co- in the columns. And the other thing, of course, is it's just really good to to, to be, feel comfortable with your own Bible that you use in your own private devotions and, and, and bring it into church and just, you know, just get familiar with it. And so I encourage you to bring your own Bibles, but of course we do have the pew Bibles there for you to read and follow along in. But this morning I will look at, um, I'll be using my, my Bible as I read, but um, Acts chapter 1, 1 to 11, and this is how the book begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And I just want to put, just put your finger there for a second. I just want to mention something. Uh, what this book says right off the bat, some of you who are really familiar with the Bible might instantly recognize that uh, the book of Luke begins almost with the exact same word. In fact, if, if you go back and read the beginning of Luke, you'll see that Luke, uh, Luke, uh, writes the book 
to Theophilus. And he writes the book to Theophilus because he wants to explain to Theophilus the very, very central facts of who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And so with the, the very first word of chapter 1 of Acts, what we see is that really uh, Luke and Acts is one book in two parts with the same author. And, uh, and this is really, it will become even more significant in a moment when we're going to look at this word proofs or infallible proofs in your version of the Bible. But just, just as we begin to get in it, Acts describes the birth of the church. It describes some significant events in the very, very, very first disciples, in the very, very first churches being planted. It describes Christianity entering Europe, <laughs> not with invading armies, but with a couple of men talking to some women at a place of prayer. And, uh, you know, in a couple of, uh, you know, a little while down the road, we get this wonderful story of Christianity entering Europe. It's all in the book of Acts. But the important thing to note here is, that, uh, is, is to note Luke's purpose. Luke's purpose is to tell us that the church is founded on the person of Jesus Christ and nothing else. That, in fact, um, the story of Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished upon the cross and in his resurrection is the absolute bedrock of the Christian faith. If that goes, we are wasting our time here this morning. We should all be at Starbucks having a coffee and reading, uh, reading the, the Sunday Citizen or something better. And, uh, and that's what we should really be doing. But the story of the church is completely and utterly based on what happened to Jesus. And as we're going to see in a moment as well, that the very same, in a sense, guide and character of Jesus is to be the guide for us. You know, sometimes it, Christians get puzzled over, like, why is it that Jesus sometimes asks questions? You might remember the story in the Bible of the woman who has a flow of blood for many years, and she touches Jesus, and Jesus knows that somebody's been healed, but he doesn't know who's been healed, and he said, who touched me? And sometimes Christians puzzle and say, you know, if Jesus is God, how is it that sometimes he has to ask a question? Well, the, the answer in a nutshell is that this, that Jesus, God, the Son of God, that Jesus lived a life in perfect obedience to his Father. And he, his entire life was guided and, uh, and directed by the Holy Spirit. And so literally, sometimes, I mean, Jesus didn't always just know what was going on around him, but Jesus lived his life in complete and utter obedience to the Father, and sometimes the Father wanted Jesus to know what was going on in a person's mind, where uh, what was happening at a great distance. And other times, the Father didn't want Jesus to know that, and Jesus never fretted over this. He just lived in obedience to his Father. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit would, in a sense, minister to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is what is going on in these people's minds. This is what it is that you have to go. This is where you have to go next. And so as we're going to see in the next few verses, that not only is the church to be completely and utterly based on the life of Jesus, uh, but also that our ministry is to be a continuation of his ministry and that our guidance is to come from the Holy Spirit, just as the Jesus was guided by the Holy Spirit in his entire life of, of ministry. So let, let's just continue. I'll start verse 1 again. <laughs> in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the, to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And I just sort of want to put your fingers in the Bible there, and I just want to say a few things. There's something really important that just was said here. And, uh, and we don't realize it because we're reading a translation of the Bible from Greek. Uh, you know, in the time that the Bible was written, there were two types of Greek. There was high classical Greek uh, of, of the great Greek writers and of the great Greek poets, and it's what, it's what really educated people would speak. And then there was street Greek. And the New Testament is not written in high classical Greek. It's written in street Greek. I think with the exception of 2 Peter. <laughs> uh, all of the New Testament is written in street Greek, common Greek. And one of the things which is so significant about this, which I, what, what I just read, is that uh, uh, Luke uses in Greek, all of a sudden, a technical word, a learned word, a, a word that goes back to a, that, uh, that Aristotle encapsulated when he was describing how to speak, how to, how to win arguments and how to present an argument. And it's the same word that's used when Greek historians are trying to write, in a sense, scientific or really, really accurate history to bring out the significance of something. And when they're trying to bring out the significance of something and show why, you know, this thing happening and this thing happening and this thing happening means this, and it's really important that we understand it, they use the word here, which we translate as proofs, and which in your Bibles in the New King James Version, is translated as infallible proofs. And so what, what Luke is saying here is something very, very significant. He's saying that, um, you know, you know Luke, Luke was a pagan who became a Christian through the ministry of St. Paul. Luke never knew Jesus. Luke was like you and me. He never saw Jesus in the flesh. He, like you and me, became a Christian as a result of the ministry of the early Christians. And what Luke is saying is this, I spent years talking to Mary and talking to Jesus' brothers and talking to Peter and talking to John Mark and talking to, to all of these people, and I've spent years in their company, and if I've asked them detailed questions, and I, I am a doctor by training, Paul calls him the beloved physician, and I am used to careful observation and careful diagnosis, and I applied my skills, and I applied what I've learned from my educated background to interview these people, and that when I've written my gospel, and when I've written this book of Acts, I have not just taken a whole pile of rumors and a whole pile of innuendo, and a whole pile of speculation, and a whole pile of mystical visions. I have, in fact, searched for the actual words of Jesus and what actually happened. And out of all that has happened and all that has said, I have tried to present to you those central true points that will lead you to the conclusion that you should reach. And that's, what, and that's what Luke is saying when he uses this word proofs. He's using a technical, philosophical, histor historiographical, I can't say that very well, but you know what I mean. <laughs> He's using a very, very technical word to communicate to you that, you know, these things really happened, and this is what it points to. The earth has been invaded 
by Almighty God. <laughs> and he has invaded the earth. Uh, he has invaded the earth not to punish you, not to show off, but he has invaded the earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to save you. He has come as Christ and as Lord. He has come for you. You can share in his triumph. And um, in fact, in a few moments in verse 4, when it says, uh, and while staying with them, I think in your version it says, and they were assembled together. In fact, the Greek word which is translated there is a word that implies eating. In other words, uh, Luke is saying, you know, Jesus didn't just sort of, you know, a couple of people didn't, uh, you know, they, they weren't, you know, sort of starved uh, because they'd been too depressed and too grief-stricken to eat and, uh, and too caught up with religious hysteria. And after a couple of days of this, they've had a couple of visions of Jesus. Luke is saying, no, that's not how it happened at all. Just as what I've been telling you about the, about the life of Jesus is absolutely true, I want you to understand that from the 40 days of Jesus' resurrection to the time that his earthly ministry comes to an end with his ascension, for 40 days, time after time, Jesus met with people. And they saw him. And in fact, they even gathered around the table with him and they ate with him. And so they know that he really conquered sin. They know that he really conquered death and hell and all hostile spiritual powers. And not only did he spend time with them and prove that he was alive uh, and that he was completely and utterly physical, he taught them. He taught them. And uh, And so that what you're getting in the Gospels is this that Jesus spends 40 days with the apostles teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them about himself, so that as they're looking back over the three years that they've known him, they say, that's why Jesus said that time and time again. That's why he did that. That's why this is so significant. That's why, you know, the fact that he likes a particular type of homeless shouldn't be in the Gospels. But the fact that he, that he did this should be in the Gospels. Like, you know, the fact that he had this view of, like, they, Jesus was the one who taught them for 40 days. And he taught them, and they listened to him with fresh ears because he had conquered sin and death and hell and had shown himself alive. And they listened. <laughs> they listened. Let's continue with our reading. Verse 4, And while staying with them, in other words, he spent much time with them, even ate with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Just want to pause here for a second as well. Um, some of us in this room are charismatics. <laughs> some of us maybe are worried about charismatics. <laughs> um, maybe someday all the charismatics can gather in a corner and we can say, oh, they're the charismatics in the congregation. And then the, uh, you know, some of us will be surprised. No, just joking. Um, you know, people sometimes get worried about the Holy Spirit. But one of the things which I love about this passage, it's the first thing that struck me this week as I began to read the text. I read the text every day at least twice, apart from looking at commentaries as I prepare to do my sermon. And, um, you know, the way, that, the way that Luke here, the way that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit is this wonderful phrase, the promise of the Father. Now, you know, some of us might be worried about 
you know, maybe being too open to the Holy Spirit, and maybe it sounds a little bit kooky, and maybe sometimes people who are really open to the Holy Spirit do kooky things and talk kooky ways. But I want to say to you this, if you just, instead of thinking of something which might frighten you, if you just listen to this phrase and say, the Father has a, the, the promise of the Father, Jesus' desire is that you and I will be open to the promise of the Father. Isn't that just a wonderful way to understand the Holy Spirit? That you and I, Jesus' desire for you and me is to say, Father, I want more and more of your promise. I want the promise of the Father more and more in my life, <laughs> in, in, in my strengths, in my weaknesses, in my day, in my plans, in my memories, in everything that makes me me. Father, your promise, may I have more and more of that. And that's how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. Isn't that just so beautiful? Verse 6. And when they had come together, this is a, sec- a second type of encounter now that uh, Luke is describing. And when they had come together, uh, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't have time to do it, but Calvin in his commentary said there are, many, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. <laughs> and uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The, the apostles are expecting that uh, Jesus is just going to no longer be hidden, but break out, destroy the Romans, destroy, destroy the idols, destroy the temples, and just rule. Jesus answers like this, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. just want to pause here for a second. Uh, I grew up in a church background that always had prophecy conferences. And... Uh, I, uh, I have this really delightful man that I, you know, my, my, my real office is the, the second cup at the corner of, uh, of uh, Rito and Dalhousie. And uh, there's this wonderful man, uh, I think he works as a dishwasher, and he saw me reading my Bible, and he, 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 he speaks to me every day now when he's, uh, he's there. And um, uh, he's a very, very devout Christian. He's always, every time he reads the news, he only reads the news in terms of how it will fit in with the second coming of Christ and um, and I just listen to him. It's just really nice to have somebody there who um, you know who just loves Jesus. And uh, I know he prays for me while I'm working on my sermons and stuff like that. And uh, he's a, a great guy, very simple guy, but a great guy. And um, and you know it is appropriate for us to do some reading and to always be reminded of the fact that Jesus will come again. It's very very important. But at the end of the day, we don't know when he's going to come back. <laughs> I mean, that's what Jesus says to us directly right here. It's not for us to know. It's not for you and me to know. I mean, it might be that before I finish this sermon, Jesus will come back. Wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> uh, but it might be that uh, he will not come back for centuries. And on one level, we as Christians have to always wait. Mind- we have to always try to live our lives mindful of the fact that at any moment, Jesus might return but on the other hand, we have to plan our lives and make our lives saying, how can we pass on the gospel to our children and to our children's children and to our children's children's children? <laughs> you know, and, and we have to both have this constant willingness to be open to the fact that Jesus might come uh, today 
and may it be so, Lord. <laughs> and we also have to say, how can we, you know, what plans can we as a church be making to help communicate and send the gospel on from generation to generation until the ends of the earth? And Jesus here has just said, you know, you know, Sinclair, you don't know when I'm going to come. So let's get upon your duty. <laughs> and, uh, and this text of scripture then, Jesus says, um, you know, you're going to receive power of the Holy Spirit. When, when, when God says that we're going to receive power, what that tells us is that we don't have enough of our own. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say, gosh, look how talented Sinclair is, and look how talented the people of St. Albans are. Let's give them a task they can accomplish by themselves. <laughs> In a sense, Jesus doesn't even pay any attention to that. He says, um, George and the people of St. Albans, I want you to fast and pray, and I want you to read my word, and I, I want you to be open to whatever big goals and big projects I want to give you, and I want you to seek my will, and, uh, and then I want you to step out in faith and do it, because you know what? I'm always going to give you something. If you're listening and if you're obedient, I'm always going to give you something more than your power and more than your wealth and more than your time, and more than your numbers. I'm always going to give you stuff like that because I don't want you to rely upon your own power. I want you to rely upon me. That's what God keeps saying. I want you to rely upon me. You know, you folks, you don't need more of me. You need more of Jesus. You don't need more of me. You need more of the Father. You don't need more of me. You need more of the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and you don't need more of each other. You need more of God. And, and so, um, you know, uh, when the word power here is used, Jesus is saying, God can give you the resources. He can give you the power to accomplish his projects. And his projects and his will is always going to be beyond your power. Get on your knees. <laughs> you know, get on your knees. That's what the text is saying to me and to you. Get on our knees. And the other thing which is so wonderful about this text is that we're called to be witnesses. To be witnesses. That's really, really a wonderful thing. You know, because some of us aren't very philosophically inclined, and some of us aren't very, very good at archaeology, and some of us don't know Greek. Probably none of us other than Dave knows Greek. And, uh, you know, and none of us maybe are really good at this and really good at that, but, you know, all of us can say... This is who Jesus is. This is what he wants to do for you. Like all of us can be witnesses. And, and, and not only can we all be witnesses, but this text is, is in a sense also causing us saying, God wants to keep kicking you out of the church. <laughs> because as I've said, many, some of you who are regular members here, you, you're maybe familiar with this line of me, is that Christianity is not a come-to religion, but a go-to faith. Uh, Christianity is not, let's get things inside these walls the way we like them, and then we can just wonder when people are going to come. <laughs> That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a come-to-religion, but a go-to-faith, where we are to take, we are to think of those first and second and third steps that we are to make to our neighbors and not only to our neighbors, but our neighbors in Toronto, and our neighbors in Vancouver, and our neighbors in Asia, and our neighbors in Africa. We are to, take, we are to think through and pray through those first steps towards our Muslim neighbors, or our Buddhist neighbors, or the Goths, 
or the people who have lots of metal stuck in inappropriate places in their bodies, at least for some of us, old people like me. And, uh, and we are not to say, when on earth are they going to come to their senses and come to us? That's the mindset of a, of a, of a come-to religion. Jesus calls us to a go-to faith. And maybe in many cases, uh, it, it, it calls us to begin to pray for our Muslim mechanic and our Buddhist doctor and the goth who serves us coffee at the Starbucks. And that maybe God is saying, you know what, George? I've called you to that mechanic and that doctor and to go to that coffee place so you could begin to pray for them that they will come to know Jesus. And, uh, and maybe as we're praying about how they can come to know Jesus, then maybe he's going to convict you of some big hairy goal <laughs> or some brand new thing that we can do that's well beyond our power. And then, you know, folks, we're to roll up our sleeves and get on our knees and say, okay, God, <laughs> let's try to do this because we can't do it in our own strength. So that's what Jesus says. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight the cloud, in a sense, it's a, an image of the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. It is an image of Jesus entering into God's glory, and at the same time, the fact that uh, the cloud, um, after Jesus has reached a, per, a certain point, blocks our sight of him. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, they're both angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Later on in the liturgy, folks, we're going to say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. <laughs> and just as Jesus Christ came and walked amongst us and, uh, in, in, in a physical form, and just as after he had tasted all there is to taste of death, he rose triumphant over sin and death and, and the evil one, and he ate with the disciples, and he talked to the disciples, and the disciples touched him, and he ascended bodily into heaven. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Someday this same Jesus will return. May it be today. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank and praise you that out of love for us, you set aside your glory and your splendor. Out of love for us, you set all of that aside and took upon yourself the humble form of a servant, that you took upon yourself our human nature and walked amongst us. We thank and praise you, Jesus, that you tasted all there is to taste of suffering and trials and temptations, only you never lost perfect communion with the Father. You never disobeyed him. You never rebelled against the Holy Spirit. But in all of your trials and temptations and sufferings, you remained in obedience to the Father and open to the moving of the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise, Jesus, that you died upon the cross, and on the cross you bore in your body and in your person all of my sins and the sins of the people in this room and the sins of the whole world. 
all that separates us from the Father, you bore in your body and in your person. We thank and praise you, Jesus, that you did this out of love for us, and that out of love for us, you tasted all there is to taste of death, and that out of love for us, you rose triumphant over sin and death and the evil one on Easter Sunday. We thank and praise you that out of love for us, you taught the apostles and convinced them of your triumph. We thank and praise you, Jesus, that out of love for us, the Holy Spirit is sent abroad into the world and abroad into our hearts, teaching us to say yes to Jesus, yes to his triumph and victory, yes to him as Savior, yes to him as Lord. Loving Father, may you send your promise upon us more and more and more that all that we are might be one yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.